Hi, and welcome back to Raveling Fraud Academy podcast. This week, we are looking to answer the question of how machine learning can effectively be used to combat fraud. There is often more hype than information available about machine learning, so for this podcast, we're joined by Eddie Bell, the head of machine learning at Ravelin. Eddie has his background in mathematics, where he got his PhD a few years back. Before joining Ravelin, Eddie worked in startups, mostly doing machine learning. In this podcast, he will cover the most common machine learning terms, explain why machine learning is good at fraud detection, and discuss where the edges of machine learning are in terms of fraud. So, Eddie, welcome. Uh, you are the first actual Ravelin employee we've had on the podcast, so this is a, this is a, in a weird way, big thrill. Um, and your background, you're not a fraud guy, you're a machine learning uh, guy, so I think that's exactly. a... Uh, I think that's a really interesting perspective to get into. But look, there's a lot of confusion around machine learning, so I'm going to ask you a series of rapid-fire questions. So answer as quickly as you can, and we're going to define some terms around machine learning. So I'll start with the hardest one first. So how do you define machine learning? What is it? So machine learning is simply a set of methods and techniques that let computers recognize patterns in data and generate predictions based on those patterns. It's as simple as that. It's not uh, the T-1000 from Terminator. It's nothing to be scared of. It's just a simple mathematical technique that lets us generate predictions. Okay, Eddie, I'm going to shoot some terms that commonly heard around machine learning, and uh, you're going to define them. So what is a feature? So a feature is simply what we call the input to a machine learning model. It's the data the model uses to generate the prediction. So, for example, in fraud, a feature could be the number of credit cards a customer has registered or how long the customer's been on the website, something like that. Okay, and what is a signal? Well, a signal is probably is just a different name for a feature. In statistics, they have different names as well. They call them response and explanatory variables. In machine learning, we have different names. In InfoSec, there's different names. But all these terms generally refer to yeah, the data the model's using to generate predictions. So what is a model? The model is what the machine learning training process generates at the end. It's like the artifact the system produces and we use that model to generate the predictions with the features. And is that different to an algorithm? Well, algorithms are kind of like the recipes on how to do something. So when we're training our machine learning model, we use a number of different algorithms to optimize its internals so that it can um, predict the thing we're trying to predict well. So for example, fraud. Uh, so in machine learning, we use many, many different types of algorithms. Another term that I hear a lot, so I've never quite been able to explain properly, is uh, precision and recall. Yeah, this is quite a tricky term that I think a lot of people get wrong. And we even try to avoid discussing it because the definition is quite complex. But precision is simply, out of all the people we predict who are fraudulent, what proportion were fraudulent? So if precision is one, we've, every prediction is perfectly correct. Um, okay, yeah, and recall? And recall is, out of all the predictions we generate what proportion of the overall number of fraudsters in the whole population were fraudulent. So if we, um, you know, 
If recall is 0.5, we've only correctly detected 50% of the fraudsters. And those two values combined, you can sort of understand the performance of the machine learning model. I just say um, a lot of people try to use accuracy. Accuracy is just how many predictions were correct for both fraudsters and non-fraudsters. But this is generally a very bad measure to use because we could have extremely high accuracy because we're predicting all the non-fraud very well. But we're actually really bad at fraud detection because we're not really predicting the fraudsters very well. So generally, you should never use accuracy. Okay. Um, finally, I think an important one to define is a threshold. So once we've trained our machine learning model and we're generating predictions, generally these predictions take the forms of probabilities. So that's a number between zero and one. The threshold decides at what point between zero and one we decide someone's a fraudster. So if we're being um, very strict, we might say if their fraud probability is above 0.3, we mark them as a fraudster. Whereas if we're being um, a bit more loose, we could go up to 0.8 or 0.9. It depends on the use case, really. Okay, excellent. So I'm going to get into the meat of it now. We've defined our terms, I think, and mm. we understand um, roughly what we're talking about. So I'm going to ask you some of the questions that, uh, that I got asked by, by people, I'm sure that you get asked, um, and some of the most common questions about machine learning, particularly as we use it and how it relates to fraud. Um, uh, one of the first ones is, why is machine learning particularly suited to fraud detection? Why is it the technology that lots of other companies choose in order to solve this, or to at least to tackle this problem? Sure, so maybe um, to contextualize why ML is good for fraud, we can talk a bit about rules, which is um, the traditional technique people would use to detect fraudsters. Um, if you have a rule-based system, uh, you have analysts or experts who look through the data and try and find patterns and create rules that capture those patterns. So um, an example could be a user has added four credit cards in one day. Mm -hmm. That looks very suspicious to the analyst, so they're going to block all those people. That would be a typical rule. Now, given what we've told you about ML, machine learning is doing almost the same procedure, but it's more efficient, it's automated, it can do it over millions and millions of cases, and a human could never do that. It doesn't have the same biases as a human. It's objective as long as your underlying data is not biased. So really we get, it's faster, it's cheaper, it's more accurate, and we get less biases in the data. But you could think of it like, as an automatic analyst going through, scouring the data and trying to come up with rules. That's essentially what the model's doing, but automatically for us. But that sort of uh, accuracy is built on sort of historical data, right? You need a trained set of data. Um, but what if you're an organization that just doesn't have that rich history of its own fraud? How do you get past that problem? Yeah, that can be quite complicated. So a lot of the machine learning we've been talking about at the moment is called supervised machine learning. And supervised machine learning relies on having a lot of historical data. And it also relies on having historical chargebacks. Um, there are situations where this isn't available. Maybe you're a low volume um, business and you don't really have all that historical data. Maybe you're an affiliate business and you don't really have access to the financial transactions. So there are situations where this kind of supervised learning may not be appropriate. Um, there's a couple ways to tackle that. One way is to try and leverage 
historical data from other businesses and apply that to your business. This mm -hmm. is something we would call, say, transfer learning. So we could train a generic model on all frauds across uh, all markets and try and apply that to a, a new business. And, and hopefully that fraud performance will transfer, uh, transfer to a new business. That's one way. Um, I mean, does Ravelin build a different model for every customer that we have, or is it, are we do, using a transfer learning? So most, I, I, it's always better if we can build a customer specific model. You'll get the best performance if you go that direction. But like I said, it's not always possible. So we have a couple of uh, solutions. One is we have a generic model, like I mentioned, that's trained on many industries, many clients, many countries. And at a pinch, we can get good performance out of that model for a new client without any data. Um, the other direction we're going is instead of having one monolithic model, that's one ginormous model that we use for all the possible fraud signals we have, we're going in this direction of micro models. So that's when we split up this big monolithic model into lots of specialized components. Those components could be, say, one could detect fraudulent looking emails, one could detect uh, fraudulent locations, one could look at your transaction history. So we're, you know, we're splitting, we're specialising, we're having lots of small specialised models instead of one monolithic model that does everything. And the advantage to that is, um, say, generally fraudulent transaction history kind of looks the same no matter who you are. You want to look at how often they're transacting, the value of those transactions, maybe what they're ordering. But the patterns are generally the same. So we started thinking, why would we retrain these trans why would we retrain transaction features every time for every new client when generally the fraud patterns are the same no matter what? Yeah. So what we can do instead is split off the transaction part, train that once generically, and then we can use it for every client from then on. And the same with other properties as well. So for example, email addresses. You know, if an email address looks suspicious, say it's random gibberish or it's numbers or it's from a very bad suspect email domain, then that's going to transfer across all our partners. And there's no reason to train a model for each individual client. So that's kind of the direction we're moving in at the moment. Um, and typically, if you're a, a typical Ravelin customer doing, I don't know, ten or tens of thousands of transactions per month, uh, or looking to become a Ravelin customer, I mean, how long does it build? How long does it take to build one of these micro model architectures for a uh, for a client? Is it days, weeks? I mean, what should their expectations be about how fast they can get going? I'd say with the traditional monolithic models, it would probably be somewhere in the realm of a week to actually build the model once we get the data, and um, and then we have to do a lot of work, sort of validating the model is really doing what we want it to do and confirming the performance for our clients. Um, with the micro model architecture, it's a bit simpler because you can think of micro models as a, as, as a library. We have a, a library of all these fraud signals on the shelf. We get a new client in and we select the components for that client, depending on what data they send us. For instance, like, you know, a uh, food delivery company doesn't need a model for tickets because yeah. they don't have tickets. Um, so we select the individual components off the shelf that would suit that customer. Then we combine them all together inside another model. So the other model looks at what all the tiny models are saying and sort of combines it all into a final decision. So it's actually very easy 
to get new clients on board with the micromodel infrastructure. It's very flexible. I mean, one of the things our listeners might be familiar with is there in machine learning, there are a bunch of different techniques. Mm-hmm. There's random forest and there's neural networks and there's deep learning and there's other um, ones that I probably don't know the names of. <laughs> <laughs> but does the micromodel architecture, does that give you the ability to sort of combine different approaches into a single model or is that something that's done anyway? Um, well, but, with a monolithic approach, you definitely can only use a single model. Okay. And for most cases, we still do use a kind of single algorithm. But the one benefit of splitting this out, much like splitting out, um, much like microservices, which is based upon, is that you can use a different technology for each component. So traditional machine learning models operate on simple numerical data always. Um, They don't really have much flexibility in the sort of data you can feed into them. Um, But if you take more complex models, something like a deep learning model, they're very good at understanding images or textual data. So we have a deep um, email model, and of course email is a text, that would be very hard to use in a traditional machine learning algorithm, but we can employ these specialized deep learning techniques as an individual component and then mix that with the traditional machine learning. So it gives us a lot of power. One of the things I definitely hear a lot from uh, from prospects and clients is they want explainability. Mm. They don't want this black box problem around uh, machine learning. It's certainly, it's certainly a, a concept that people have about it that you'll get an output but it won't know why. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How do you, how do you get around that or you know, to, which, to what degree can we explain uh, how the machines made a decision? Yeah, so that's really important for us and really important for the whole machine learning community, really, especially if you think of applications in, say, medicine or whether you get a mortgage or not, explainability becomes really important. Um, So there's this continuum in machine learning. The simpler the model, the worse it is at predictions, but the more explainable it is. The more complex the model, the better it performs, it will be the best it possibly can be at fraud detection, but it'd be very complex to know what's happening. Obviously, we want the best performance possibly to save the most money for our customers, but we do want to understand what's happening. So we take an approach where we keep the black box as a black box. We don't try to look inside, but what we do is we change the input that we put into the black box and then look at the output and through that process, we can sort of probe what's happening inside this black box. So we can tell that the model favors email addresses or it favors looking at the transaction value and that sort of thing. And then we can show that to our customers and um, they can understand why we're making the decisions we're making. We also have another technique, this is called unsupervised learning. Um, That's where you don't use labels, we don't use um, chargebacks, we simply look at the customer and try and see what could be strange about their data. Have they got 27 cards? That's quite strange, normal people don't have that. Have they done 10 transactions in one day? That's very strange, people don't do that. Even though we don't know that person is fraudulent, we know there's something strange about their transaction behaviour or their card behaviour and we can then flag that up to our clients. So we use a couple of techniques. And the output of that is the intuitive dashboard, right? I mean, it's human readable screen that they can find that information. Exactly. So it will say something like um, the number of cards this customer has is very suspicious, or it will say 
this customer has failed more transactions than 99% of other customers. And it will give you like real actionable, human understandable insights into why we may think a customer is fraudulent or not. Um, I mean, where in, your, where in your mind do you think these sort of edges of what machine learning can do are? I mean, what are the things, uh, the elements of fraud that it's just not very good at detecting or it's just not built for, uh, for that type of work? I think, so the, the interesting thing about fraud is I think there's always, there can always be a perfect fraudster yeah. who installs the app on a new phone, registers a very good email address, um, ob like obscures themselves from our system and behaves totally like a normal person. They could get through, but we're continually trying to find new signals to stop people doing that. For instance, some people, um, um, they may be a perfect fraudster, but they're always committing fraud from their uh, home internet connection. Um, so what? So then we block them based on their internet connection. But then they go to say um, Google and they'll spin up a, a, a machine and try and order from there. So they're using a different address each time, and then it then they can get passed again. But then we'll just, we'll add a feature that says, oh, they're on Google, they're on Amazon, they're on a public IP. That's very weird. No normal person would order like a a, a, rest, a, a food to their home from a from a service place. Yeah, it's yeah. very strange. So it's kind of this cat and mouse game. We keep going, going. I think there is there'll always be a very, 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 very tiny percent of p the perfect crime that we won't be able to detect. But I don't think humans would be able to detect that either. I think if a human can detect it we can detect it with machine learning. Well, I think that's a great place to end, Eddie. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right.